Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On today's episode, I'm talking about Jane Campion's 2003 film, In the Cut. Meg Ryan plays Franny, an English teacher who becomes embroiled in a murder investigation after parts of a woman's body are found in her garden. She may have even seen the murder victim shortly before the crime, After the lead detective on the case interviews her, the two of them become involved in a dark and torturous relationship. When it was released, In the Cut was panned by critics pretty brutally, but over the years it's been reclaimed, and that's what I'm doing with this episode. I unabashedly love this film. I'm kind of obsessed with it. I think it's a deeply erotic and feminist film that centers female sexuality and female pleasure. It also explores the dark side of desire and the complicated relationships between men and women. There are major spoilers in this episode, including the ending. I talk all about the film. I also talk quite explicitly and openly about sex. Much of the episode is dedicated to the eroticism in the film because I think it's an important part of the film. I just wanted to be upfront for anyone who might be uncomfortable with that topic. I talk very honestly about it. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadinfilms for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films, or you can follow me on social media and even interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. Before I get into my episode, I just wanted to talk about something for a few minutes. I recently lost my dog, Boomer. On May 25th, 2021, we had to put him down because of health issues. I wanted to update any of you who maybe don't follow me on social media or whatever because I did post about it there, but some people may just listen to the episodes. I've talked about Boomer a few times on other episodes, including my episode on Kelly Reichardt's Wendy and Lucy and Vittorio De Sica's Umberto D. So I did talk about him and some of you may be familiar with him. I had Boomer for 10 years, a decade of my life, and losing him has been really devastating and heartbreaking. And I just wanted to update any of you who may have seen him on social media, may have remembered me talking about him. He was a really loving and sweet dog. And I'm still processing a lot of my grief about it. My mom got him the day that I went to college in 2010. So I was replaced very promptly when I left home and she got Boomer and he's been her son (laughs) for 10 years. And her companion, she was very close to him. I was close to him and it's been a really painful loss. I just wanted to let those of you who listen know about it. It's definitely hard. I'm sure many of you listening have lost a beloved pet. It feels really like the end of an era 
in a way it feels like the end of a particular part of my life to have this dog for 10 years the absence is just enormous it's just enormous and unspeakable and so I just wanted to say a few words about it I appreciate all of you who have listened and who have been invested in my life for years now and I felt like those of you who do know about him would want to know and he will be so missed so missed so I just wanted to say that and I won't go on here's my episode about Jane Campion's In the Cut first saw this film in 2012 so I saw it almost a decade ago and I liked it at the time I really loved it of course but you don't know how you're going to react to a film a decade later after you've changed and gone through things and had different experiences and you don't know how a film is going to affect you I was in my early 20s when I saw this film first. Now I'm in my early 30s. I'm 31, I'll be 32 in a few months. You just don't know how a film will hit you. There is something about Jane Campion's work that I just don't even know. It's hard to talk about. I have an episode about her film, The Piano. That's a film that deeply haunts me and affects me. And it's one of my favorite films. And when it comes to Jane Campion's work, I've seen just about all of it. I've watched Top of the Lake. I don't think I've seen the second season though. I've seen Portrait of a Lady, The Piano, Sweetie, Bright Star, In the Cut, obviously. I haven't seen Holy Smoke, and I haven't seen An Angel at My Table, but I've seen just about all of her work. There are particular films in her body of work that just absolutely knock me out and astonish me, and I I have to say The Piano's number one for me because I saw it when I was really young, and it affected me really deeply. This might be number two. I am enraptured by this film. It casts a spell on you, I think. It's a mood. This film is a mood. (laughs) It creates almost this dreamy, gauzy, dazed, atmosphere. It's languid. It's slow. It took me a little while to watch it, but you feel like you're woozy a little bit. Like you feel like you're kind of stumbling through a dream. It enraptures me. It casts a spell on me. Like obviously Campion meant to create that. The film is blurry at times and out of focus. The way the camera work is in the film, the colors of the film, it's drowsy and dreamy. It completely just saturates you. I don't even know how to talk about this film. It's a feeling. It gives me a feeling and that doesn't always happen with films. The subject matter is not the same at all, but something similar, a similar experience that I had with a film, um, there would be two. One would be Lynn Ramsey's Morvern Collar, which I have an episode about. The colors and it's, you know, it has a, a female character who's really interesting and kind of vulnerable at times. In Samantha Morton, she plays the, the Morvern Collar, um, that's the 
the woman's name in the film. Such an unusual name. It's an unusual film, but it casts a spell and it has like these colors and this look about it. And it has this feeling to it that's hard to describe. And another one would be probably Krzysztof Kieślowski's The Double Life of Veronique. Again, not thematically similar in any way. <laughs> like these films don't have anything in common in terms of the subject matter, but they do center women and they have like this dreamlike thing about them and the colors and they really kind of transport you and give you this feeling that's so mysterious. Like I just finished the film in the cut. I just finished it and I wanted to just go ahead and record my episode while I'm in the I'm in the afterglow of the film. I'm just in the magic of it and the the stardust, I guess, that a film can give you and the emotions that it can give you. And I just wanted to speak from like the rawness of that and like what I'm feeling and what is suffusing me, you know, as I talk. I love this film. <laughs> it's shocking how maligned it was when it came out in 2003. A lot of people may not realize this film was panned pretty much across the board. It got very negative reviews, very low ratings. This was a different direction for Meg Ryan too. What's interesting about the film is that first of all the original financers of the film, the original backers, pulled out of it. It's based on a book by Susanna Moore. It's very, it seems to be quite faithful to the book except for the ending. The ending is different. In the book, Franny dies and she's murdered by Rodriguez at the end of it. In the film, Jane Campion said in an interview that she wanted to focus on survival, that she wanted Franny to survive. And so Franny lives and she kills Rodriguez and it's a very different ending. I think I prefer the film ending personally because I'm the same. I prefer a survival <laughs> kind of thing. Nicole Kidman was supposed to play Franny. She actually developed the script with Campion for several years. That doesn't surprise me because Nicole Kidman starred in a Jane Campion film called Portrait of a Lady and that's quite a good film. It's visually beautiful. I watched it a few years ago and really liked it. So it makes sense that that they would team up together and do this. But at one point, Nicole Kidman started to go through a divorce, as we know, in the early 2000s, and she divorced Tom Cruise. And she was not able to star in the film because she wanted to spend time with her children. And it was obviously just a difficult time, right? So Meg Ryan came in and Meg Ryan actually auditioned. And by this point, Meg Ryan was a big star. She was like America's sweetheart in the 1990s with a lot of the romantic comedies like Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail and all kinds of stuff. And she was in City of Angels. I think that was kind of a big film too in the 90s. So Meg Ryan had a very different public image as an actress. She didn't do thrillers, certainly not erotic thrillers. This film is a huge departure for her in a lot of ways. So when the film came out, there was a lot of negative opinion about it. I'm not quite sure why. Well, I have my suspicions. I think that male viewers back then, it's hard to believe it's been almost 20 years. I don't think they knew how to take on this film because I see this film as deeply feminist. I see this film as centering, centering women, centering female desire, female sexuality. It's a 
deeply, profoundly erotic film. It's probably, it might be the most erotic film that I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of erotic thrillers. And I'm going to talk about the sexuality and the eroticism in the film in a little bit. It is like incredibly erotic <laughs> for me personally. It just overwhelmed me. The sexuality, the sensuality of the film and how feminist it was and just how much it was about like female desire, female fantasy. I loved that about it. It absolutely resists the male gaze. This is one of the few films that I really feel like it is a representation of women that is very feminist and very complex and interesting and fascinating. And like, I'm going to dig into all that. But I just wanted to say that this film was really maligned by people when it came out. Jane Campion struggled for a few years to get back on track. It absolutely affected her career for a while. It took many years before she made another film and her next film after this one was Bright Star which was about John Keats and his relationship with a young woman named Fanny Braun. Those films are night and day, but she she struggled a little bit in the years after this film because it was not accepted in the right way. But it seems like in the years since, and particularly in the last few years, this film has been reclaimed by women and by feminist critics, feminist film writers. I will be honest, when I do episodes, I stay away from reviews. So I have been very careful. While there are a lot of essays out there about this film, those essays go into, you know, everything that that particular writer interprets and thinks, I made a concerted effort to stay away from that because I want to give my own personal thoughts and feelings about the film and what it brings up for me and, and all of that. So I just want to be honest about that. This is such a haunting film. I, I feel I feel overwhelmed by it. I've been watching it for a few days because like I said, it's a bit slow. It's a bit languid. It's not a conventional thriller. And as I said, the original backers of the film pulled out when they realized that Jane Campion was not going to make some run-of-the-mill thriller. This was not going to be Seven. That's not what this film is. Both of them have similar thematic content about like a crime, a serial killer. They are night and day and worlds apart. Jane Campion was not making a mainstream conventional thriller. She was doing something very different. And in an interview, she talked about how she was interested in the relationships. That is what the film is about, is about the relationships between the people. So she lost her original backers because it wasn't a conventional enough film. I was say this is a very art house film. It's very abstract. I would say it's impressionistic as well. The blurriness, the way that things are out of focus at times, it almost has the feeling like you're, you're inside Franny's world in a way. I think in the book, the book is sort of like stream of consciousness inside Franny's mind. And I think that's what Campion was trying to recreate in the film. And she's actually teaching a Virginia Woolf book in the film. Franny's an English teacher, like I think at a high school or something. She's teaching to the lighthouse and to the lighthouse is a good example of Wolf's stream of consciousness, right? And then there's a lighthouse at the end of the film as we know where Rodriguez takes her and he's going to kill her. So I almost feel like the impressionistic way that 
Jane Campion filmed it, I, I think she was trying to give you the impression that you were inside of somebody's consciousness. The out of focus, the blurriness, all of these things, I guess. That's how I interpret it. So this film is very unconventional. I'm guessing that reviewers or even audiences just didn't know what to do with it and didn't know what to make of it. That it was so different and it subverted your expectations of an erotic thriller. This is nothing like, you know, Basic Instinct or Fatal Attraction. As much as I like those films, I am a total fangirl over 90s erotic thrillers. I've seen like all of the Adrian Lyne films. <laughs> I've seen all that stuff. I've seen a lot of erotic thrillers. I watched them when I was younger. I am not maligning that genre at all. I loved it. I grew up on it as like a 90s kid. But that's not what In the Cut is. And if you're going to In the Cut for that, you're going to be disappointed. This film is, I think at the heart of it, it's about desire. I think that is the core of the film. It's about love and desire. It's about relationships between men and women in particular. But I think the core of it is about desire. And I think that's why it struck a deep, deep nerve for me. And I'm going to go into that. This is going to be a really personal episode, but in a way that maybe I haven't been personal before. I was a little, I have talked about desire on this podcast and in different episodes. Like I've covered sexually explicit films. Michael Haneke the Piano Teacher is a good example. Or Jane Campion's other film that I love, The Piano, which is very erotic. But the eroticism and in the cut is just so fascinating to me and like overpowering to me. I think films are one of the most powerful art forms when it comes to tapping into desire. It may be the most powerful art form when it comes to desire, when it comes to activating our desires and turning us on, right? Giving us pleasure as we watch these things, you know, seeing two people kissing, two people touching each other. It can be in a, a very erotic art form in certain hands. And I think in the hands of Jane Campion, particularly in this film, there is a deep, powerful eroticism and about the film. It's undeniable. And I'm going to go into all that, of course. But nobody knew what to do with this film. And thankfully, in the years since, people have reclaimed it. And I'm reclaiming it. I love it. I absolutely unabashedly love this film. I'm not saying everything about it is perfect. I think there's some racial stuff um, in some of the representations of the black characters that does not hold up 20 years later at all and really didn't need to be in there. Like some of the stuff with Cornelius and I felt uncomfortable with some of it. So I'm not saying it's a perfect film in every regard, but for me, what I'm going to be focusing in this episode is the things that I loved about it, the things that fascinate me, that just enrapture me. I, I love it. I loved the look of it, the feel of it. It's mysterious. Like, it's really hard to talk about this film in a way. It's just not a conventional film. It has a mood, an atmosphere, a feeling about it when you're watching it. It took me a few days to watch it. Like I said, it's sort of languid and it gradually unfolds. And the eroticism and the desire in it were really powerful for me. And so I found myself having to kind of take breaks because I was like, oh my God, what is going on? Like, I mean, I remembered how good it was a decade ago, but I was like, oh my Lord, you know, 
was like so overwhelmed. And Jane Campion talked about Susanna Moore's book and said that it was sexually explosive. I love that phrase. It was sexually explosive, that book. And she was trying to translate that into the film. And I think it's very sexual, beautifully sexual, beautifully erotic, or, or not even beautiful. It's beautiful, but it's dark. There's a dark eroticism to the film. It taps into some of the darker things. And maybe that's why it's also very captivating and mesmerizing to me. Like, I'm drawn to the dark side. I'm drawn to dark stuff. I cover dark films. I like intense emotion. That's me. <laughs> I just want to start off by saying the thing about this film is that I have to talk about the sex in it. And I want to give my perspective as a woman about this film. I do think that women probably watch it differently than men. I'll be honest. I don't want to generalize, but I feel like the film strikes women probably in a very different way than it does men. So yeah, I'm talking about sex. I kind of agonized over this a bit. I knew that when I chose this film to cover that I was going to have to talk explicitly about sex. I got a little bit scared about it, a little bit uncomfortable about it, even though I'm pretty open about this topic. You know, I talked about it with the piano. I talked about it with the piano teacher. When sex comes up, I talk about it and I'm not squeamish about it. And I'm not like, you know, over here giggling or something and using euphemisms. But at the same time, it's like, oh, I'm talking about sex and people are going to listen to this. But you know what? I'm a 31 year old woman and I want to talk about sex and it's okay to do that. It's okay to. And I got to interrogating what I was feeling of why am I embarrassed or ashamed to talk about sex, to talk about my own sexual desire. In this world, women are constantly sexualized and objectified. Our bodies are put on display for the pleasure of men, usually. Yet we're not allowed to talk about our own desires. It's strange. So this episode is also about me not only reclaiming this film, but reclaiming my right to talk about sex openly and honestly and in the way that feels right for me without feeling embarrassed about it. And I do think in a way in the film, Jane Campion is reclaiming eroticism and sexuality for women and making it for women and centering women in her depiction of sex. So we as women should be able to talk about sex. We should be able to say what we want, what we like, what we feel about our bodies, the pleasure we feel inside them. So I'm not going to shy away from this subject and I'm not talking about sex for a male audience. I'm talking about it for women, for women who listen to me and who may get something out of this discussion and for the women who watch this film and get something out of it, who are maybe like me and just feel absolutely turned on own and in love with the film. I'm going to use those words. Yeah, it turns me on. Those scenes turn me on. That's part of what cinema does, right? It turns us on. Not just sexually. It can turn us on intellectually. It, it can turn us on emotionally. Films activate our desires. They can become part of our fantasies. I mean, I have literally watched films just for certain scenes that I saw. Like I watched a noir film called Out of the Past. I saw some screenshots or something of this beautiful scene where the the man and the woman um, who are attracted to each other, they get caught in the rain 
and they come back into the house. He takes a towel and he's toweling off her hair and then he stops and he kisses her neck and it's so sensual. I love that scene. It's one of my favorite scenes and I literally watched the film just for that scene because it activated something in me. Like I'm someone, I live a lot in my fantasies and in my desires. I just do. I live in my dreams. Like I have a very intense dream world. We as women, what I'm trying to say is that we talk a lot about the male gaze when it comes to films. We don't talk as much about the female spectator and the female viewer and how we can get turned on by the images that we see. When I talked about Singing in the Rain, an episode about that, I talked about Gene Kelly and how attractive I found him when I was a teenager and how he turned me on and I liked looking at him. I took pleasure in looking at his body. Or when I think about the piano and Harvey Keitel, I found him very attractive <laughs> when I saw that film when I was younger. So I do want to talk about these films or talk about this film and I've done it in other episodes from the perspective of a woman's desire oh, as a female spectator. And we don't get to talk about that as women. We don't get to say, oh, I think that man's really attractive. Oh, I like that scene. That is a fantasy of mine or that interests me, right? And I feel like Jane Campion provides a space for us as women to say, oh, I like that. And that centers me in it. That centers a woman's pleasure and a woman's desire in that scene. And most of this, I mean, all of the scenes in this film do that, all of the sex scenes. I just want to have the freedom to talk about it, to talk about it away from the male gaze and away from male expectations. These are my feelings and I just want to be open about it and talk about it. Desire is like a really big subject for me in my life. Desire is really painful for me at the same time because I'm not seen as conventionally attractive in the world. And so my desire has been more hidden. I guess you could say. And desire itself, the emotion, the feeling of desire, it just creates chaos inside of me. My desire is volcanic, violent, uncontrollable in a way. It's this thing inside of me that is so intense that I don't even know what to do with it sometimes. And so I am drawn to films that explore it. I think it's almost like when you can't fulfill your desire, it grows even stronger. It's like it starts out as this flame and then it becomes this conflagration, like this wildfire. I don't always know what to do with it. And I am a very passionate person. I am like deeply connected to my own eroticism. And again, I feel like we as women, we don't get to say that necessarily, or it sounds weird when we say it openly. If you say, yeah, I'm really erotic, like I'm connected to that part of myself. And it's a very important part of me. It's been with me forever, this part of me that's kind of underground and hidden, and it's just inside me. And it's really important to me. What I love about this film is the eroticism in it. I feel like Jane Campion is really putting eroticism on the screen. She's a rare director in that way. And I, I want to linger on this because I want to talk about this because this is what makes her film so powerful is some of the eroticism in them. The Piano is a good example and this film is a great example. I would say they're her most erotic films. So many films about sex are directed by men. And it's very rare to have films that delve into eroticism through a woman's perspective. She does that throughout the film, whether it's Franny masturbating or if it or the oral sex scene. 
between Franny and Detective Malloy, or even at the end when she handcuffs him and she is on top of him, like riding him. I don't even know how to like talk about this, like what language to use. So apologies if it's awkward, cause I don't know how to describe these sexual acts necessarily in the most perfect language. But throughout the film, it's about a woman getting pleasure. Like that's the eroticism. And so I just wanna talk about the erotic for a moment and how I feel about it and my relationship to the erotic. I wanna talk about this. I don't get to talk about it. And I think maybe other women women may be able to relate to it. I don't know. I feel very connected to my eroticism. Even though I'm not conventionally attractive and I don't necessarily attract the male gaze, I'm in conflict about that. Sometimes, of course, I wish men desired me. I certainly don't have a long line of men who want to like be with me. On the other hand, not attracting the male gaze sort of has allowed me to develop my eroticism on my own and to have my own personal relationship with it separate from men. It's not dependent on a man. My desire and eroticism are not wrapped up in men. It's something that's within me. It's hard to describe. It's like inside me, like part of my essence, I guess you could say. So um, for me, the erotic is like a life force. It's like this feeling of being connected to your body. Part of that is like generating pleasure within yourself. I'm just gonna say it, having an orgasm. To me, that experience is transcendent. That is probably the only way that I access something that is transcendent and that sort of takes me out of my body Body, but it roots me deeply into my body, it makes me grateful to have my body so that I can feel that. It's a beautiful, gorgeous thing. Because of that, that transcendence that I feel in that experience, for me, my sexuality is like something very sacred and spiritual to me. It's deeply connected to the spiritual and the transcendent for me. It's deeply internal. It's an overflowing, it's a release, a rush, a miracle, a treasure. My eroticism is so important to me and I never get to talk about it and I wanted to talk about it in my own way and with my own language. When you tap into that, when you find that in yourself and you're able to have it irrespective of a man, it's generated within you. And it's been there since I was a child. You know, I have felt this inside of me. When you tap into it, I really, you feel your own divinity in a way and you feel your own worth and your own value and the beauty of being alive. That's what eroticism is to me. It's not about being objectified. It's not about being used by a man. It's not even dependent on men. It is within me. I am the source of it. It's like part of my soul. And I love Audre Lorde. She's this amazing feminist writer. And she has this great essay called The Uses of the Erotic. The Erotic is Power. And I love the way she talks about the erotic. And I just wanted to share some of this. She sees desire and eroticism as a creative force, as an energy that comes from within. And it's about deep feeling. For her, eroticism is not just about sex. It's about feeling. It's about always feeling, living your life with emotion and passion. I believe in feeling. 
That's what I'm sharing in these episodes and it's in everything that I do. I resist numbness. I absolutely resist not feeling. I have to feel. That's how I know I'm alive. And for me, the erotic is deeply tied to being alive and feeling alive. And I think it's also about sharing and connecting with others. There's the erotic that's within you and then there's the experience of sharing your body and yourself with another person. And that's part of it as well. But it fundamentally originates within you and you carry it within yourself, I think. Lord's definition expands the meaning of the erotic beyond just sex into all areas of life. She says, quote, the very word erotic comes from the Greek word eros, the personification of love in all its aspects, born of chaos and personifying creative power and harmony. When I speak of the erotic, then I speak of it as an assertion of the life force of women, of that creative energy empowered, the knowledge and use of which we are now reclaiming in our language, our history, our dancing, our loving, our work, our lives, unquote. And she also connects the erotic to joy. I like this quote. Quote, another important way in which the erotic connection function is the open and fearless underlining of my capacity for joy in the way my body stretches to music and opens into response, hearkening to its deepest rhythms. So every level upon which I sense also opens to the erotically satisfying experience, whether it is dancing, building a bookcase, writing a poem, examining an idea. Unquote. I love that. So eroticism is not just about the sexual act. It could be in anything creative. You could be tapping into the erotic when you dance, when you write, when you are creating anything. If you're painting, whatever. The erotic is connected to creativity, to creation. That's what's amazing about her writing about the erotic. It suffuses every part of us. We live with it. The film, everything about it is erotic. It's not just in those scenes between Detective Malloy and Franny. Those are very sexually intense scenes, but there's something just erotic about the entire film. There's something about even when there's no sex happening in the film, there's something sensual about it. Maybe it's the heat. Maybe it's like the summer in New York, but the entire film has like this haze over it in a way. It's in the way the women walk and talk and in just the way they are with each other. The way Franny notices words and language, you can tell her passion for that. The erotic is in everything and it suffuses the film. It really does, like every aspect of it. Fundamentally, the erotic is about feeling for Audre Lorde. And so I love that. I love that. And I'll leave us with one last quote. Quote, the erotic is a measure between the beginnings of our sense of self and the chaos of our strongest feelings. It is an internal sense of satisfaction to which once we have experienced it, we know we can aspire. For having experienced the fullness of this depth of feeling and recognizing its power in honor and self-respect, we can require no less of ourselves, unquote. So it's about tapping into your, your power, your potential, the fullness, of yourself and who you are. Like that's part of it too. For Lord, you live eroticism. It's a way of being. It's a way of living. You open yourself up to life. You live with passion and intensity and emotion and feeling. That's part of of connecting to the erotic. And you use that. You use that eroticism in every part of your life. Whether you're engaging in sex with somebody or you're writing a poem or you're painting something or whatever you're doing. 
you're tapping into the eroticism that you feel. I think that is a huge part of this film. When we talk about it being erotic, what does that mean? It's the feelings in the film. It's the emotion of the film. And that makes it different from a conventional thriller that's about, oh, who's the murderer? For me, the solving of the murders is secondary in the film. It really is secondary to the relationships between these people, to the emotions that Franny the thing about it, Franny's the heart of the film. This film is not about the murders. The murders are secondary. They really are. What this is about, this film is about desire, the chaos of it, the pain of it at times, the beauty of it, the intensity of it. It's about this woman who is very kind of disconnected from life, very heartbroken. That's the way Meg Ryan described her in an interview. She saw Franny as somebody very walled off and disconnected from life and heartbroken and, and things like that. She's someone who is very disappointed with life. The film is also about like the desire for romance and like these romantic myths that you're going to find your soulmate, that somebody's going to complete you and how a lot of us go around and we never find that and then we're heartbroken about it and we feel empty and we feel incomplete and the film is challenging that in a lot of ways. I'll talk more about that but I think at the heart of this film is about a woman undone and unraveled by her desire. She is overwhelmed by her desire for Detective Malloy. It's about the collision of these two lives. The murders could be there or not be there. The murders are the reason why these two people collide in the first place. And it's about what they activate for each other, what they churn in each other, churn up, what they stir. And when he comes into her life, he's like a lightning bolt that sets everything on fire. And she can't go back to who she was before she met him. He destabilizes her, he frightens her, her desire for him frightens her. But he also becomes a way for her to explore that desire. A lot of my desire is painful because it's unreciprocated. That's where you get into some real pain. When you desire somebody else and you want somebody else and they don't want you back and you go through that over and over again where you live in the world as an undesirable person, as an unattractive person or an attractive woman. You can be an unattractive man and you can still be with a woman or whatever. It's very hard in this world to be an unattractive woman. And I've lived a lot of my life being unwanted and invisible and stuff like that. So I have desires, but they're unrequited. They're unreciprocated. And so what do I do with that? What do you do when you're undesirable? What do you do when you're unwanted and nobody wants you? What do you do with that? It's painful. But in this film, Franny she desires him and he desires her, which allows them to explore the desire and to have a relationship that is very dark at times and intense and complicated, but also like tender too. That's part of the eroticism as well as that deep connection between the two of them that you feel. This film is Yes, this film has sex in it, but it's not just sex that's there to titillate you or something or turn you on. What is so um, arousing, I guess, about the sex is that there are intense emotions within it. It's the desire that Franny feels for him 
right? And the desire that he feels for her. But it's also about their attraction to each other and her fear of him. She doesn't know, is he the murderer? Is he not? Because of the tattoo on his wrist. Almost the entire film, she's in conflict about it. Like she doesn't know, is he the killer? Is he not the killer? Was he the man at the red turtle getting a blow job that she watched? Like I love that moment of voyeurism. So it's there throughout the film, the desire and the attraction between these two people. That's what's erotic about it. It's not just, oh yeah, we're going to have sex and then I'm going to leave. And it's not just sex. It's this connection between the two of them. It's the intimacy of it. It's the exposure. It's the need. It's the hunger. It's the passion. Like that's what makes it erotic <laughs> instead of pornographic. Because Audrey Lord. Audrey Lord separates the pornographic from the erotic. The erotic is about feeling. The pornographic is about sensation without feeling. That's what she writes. What makes this film erotic is that it's not just about sensation. It's about feeling. Because when they have sex with each other, the stakes are high. He could be a murderer. And does that turn her own? This is the dark side of the desire. Like she thinks he's the one that got the blowjob at the Red Turtle for much of the film. And she watched that. Her voyeurism she watched that blowjob being given and she was repelled and repulsed by it. But I think what she doesn't want to admit is that she was kind of turned on by it too, or she wouldn't have watched. And we as women don't always get to admit some of the darker things that turn us on or that we might find arousing. And I think part of what attracts her to him at the beginning is that she does think he's the one that got the blowjob. That's what's interesting is that the women in the film are the woman, Franny. She's not some saint or angel when it comes to this stuff. She gets to be murky. She gets to be complicated. She gets to be voyeuristic. At times she doesn't know, is he the killer? Is he not? Does that turn her on? Does that not? I mean, obviously there's something about him she's attracted to. So the film is about the desire and the attraction, the dark side of desire, the way that it can overtake us and smother us. You know, desire can be very irrational. And I think that desire and fear are mingled in this film. And I think they're always mingled for me too. Desire and fear. There is the fear of the desire. This film is about wanting someone so much that it hurts. That's what this film is about. She wants Malloy so much that it hurts. And she doesn't just want him sexually. She does want him sexually, but she wants him. She wants even more. I think near the end when she's in the bathtub, she says she's scared of what she wants when she's sitting in the bathtub and he's washing her. Later on in the film, she says she's scared of what she wants. That's part of what this film is about. Wanting someone so much it hurts, the way that desire can tear you apart, can tear a hole inside of you. That's what it is. And there's such an electricity between them. There's like this terrible like hunger that she feels for him. And the scene near the end is a perfect example where she handcuffs him and she gets on top of him and straddles him. And she like, it's very intense. She, she comes, she has an orgasm and then she's just sobbing and crying because she's so obsessed with him and she desires him so much and she's so desperate for him. And that scares her. I think she feels out of control. She's an intellectual woman. She teaches English. She's a 
she's a teacher. She's someone very connected with her intellect. And I think that when her emotions overtake her, she's not used to it and she's very scared of it. She's very scared of when she meets Malloy and what he brings out in her. And I do want to talk about some of the sexual and erotic scenes in the film. These scenes are important because of their eroticism and the way that they center female pleasure. That is what is, I think, really radical about this film and what Jane Campion is doing. She's not just having sex that's like what you've seen in a lot of other films. I've seen a lot of films. I mean, I've seen some intense films. I do watch some sexually explicit movies and they're usually very, they're tied to the male gaze. They're just, they just are. They don't show oral sex, for instance. They don't show women's pleasure being centered. And this film does. It absolutely subverts your expectations of a sex scene, a lot of these. So after she first meets Malloy, you know, he goes to her apartment and he's interviewing her for the first time. He tells her that a woman's body has been found. She was disarticulated, which means she was basically dismembered, and that some of the, the woman's body parts were found in the garden at um, Franny's apartment. So he comes to her apartment. He's asking her stuff. And from that first meeting, you can tell how powerful the electricity and the connection is between them. Once again, this is part of the eroticism of the film, is the seduction of it, the connection between these two people. Like they haven't taken their clothes off. They haven't done anything. It's in the way they look at each other. It's in the way they are in each other's presence. It's something really immaterial and hard to talk about, but like they ooze it. They like ooze this sexual desire for each other almost from the beginning when they meet each other. That night, we see Franny masturbating while she's thinking of him and she's imagining him getting a blowjob. So she's going back to that scene where she saw him, where she thinks she saw him at the Red Turtle getting the blowjob. And she later finds out that what she saw, the woman who was giving it, she had blue fingernails and she's actually the murder victim. She finds that out. So as she's masturbating, she's going back to this voyeuristic scene that she watched and she's also imagining herself undressing in front of him. This scene centers female desire and female fantasy in a way that I just have not come across in other films or in a lot of films. And I'm actually really fascinated by female masturbation scenes in films. It's a weird thing, I know, but I take note of them when I see them and I think they're very interesting. There's a really powerful scene in an in an Ingmar Bergman film called The Silence, where there's a masturbation scene. Black Swan comes to mind. There is a masturbation scene in that one. Francois Ozon's Under the Sand has a masturbation scene. There's a lot of different films that do have them, but they're not always shown from a a woman's perspective or by a female director. What I'm fascinated by with these scenes is the way that they explore desire and longing, at times loneliness, you know, because if you're masturbating, it's because you're alone and nobody else is there. And there's usually a yearning 
or a longing that comes along with those scenes that the woman is pleasuring herself because she longs for a particular person. Blue is the warmest color has one. There are ones where the women are thinking about men. There are ones where the women are thinking about other women. I just think they're very interesting scenes and they're also scenes about fantasy and we don't often get to see women's sexual fantasies represented in cinema. And so that was something that I liked about this masturbation scene was that not only do we see Franny touching herself, we see what she's seeing. We see what she's imagining and fantasizing about. And it's a little bit dark. It's a little bit unexpected that she would think about him getting a blowjob because she seemed so kind of horrified by it a little bit. But I think there's a tension there where she thinks she should be repulsed by it but she's maybe actually turned on by it and she allows herself as she's masturbating to indulge and engage in that fantasy of of watching him get a blowjob and then she imagines herself undressing in front of him and so she becomes an active participant in the fantasy and so that is all about a woman's pleasure you know, she's pleasuring herself and she's thinking about him. And I think it's very erotic. It's what a lot of women do when they're masturbating, right? They have fantasies and they think about things. And sometimes they think about things that might be a little bit like dark or twisted or kind of unexpected. So I love that Jane Campion was willing to go there. So then later on, Franny agrees to go on a date with Malloy. At first, she doesn't want to. At first, I think she's she's uncomfortable. She's conflicted. She thinks that he's the guy at the red turtle and that makes her uncomfortable, but I think it also kind of attracts her to him. That's the dark part of it. I think she's kind of scared to explore her desire. I think she's scared of where this desire will take her. So she does agree to go on the date with him. And even before it begins, like she's just standing on the sidewalk and she has this beautiful sort of flower slip dress in it. I just wanted to say, I, I love the fashion in this film. I love the way Jennifer Jason Lee and Meg Ryan looked in this film, just on an aesthetic level. I loved Jennifer Jason Lee as a blonde. I loved Meg Ryan as sort of like brown, like reddish brown hair. I loved her bangs. This really was a transformative role for Meg Ryan. Such a departure from her romantic comedies. But I think she is astounding in this film. She is vulnerable. She's fragile. She is so raw at times. She completely taps into her emotions. This is an excellent performance. It is an astonishing performance. It's probably one of my favorite female performances in a film. Like it's at least in my top 20 possibly. I was knocked out by it like her acting because she had to convey a lot of like Franny's interiority and Franny's psychology just through her face, just through her eyes, just through different things, right? The way she stands different mannerisms. I just really wanted to emphasize that I think Meg Ryan did an excellent, exquisite performance with this film. Her fragility was very moving to me. As the film goes on, she gets progressively more and more like fragile and unraveling. And that's part of the power of the film too, is that when you watch it the first time, you don't know if Malloy is the killer. Now me watching it the second time, I knew he wasn't. But the first time you watch it, you're like Franny. Is he the killer? Is he not? Did he kill her sister? Did he kill these women? And if he did, like, why is she still having 
having sex with him, why is she still attracted to him? You know, that's the confusion as well is like, why does she want this man if she thinks that he's a possible killer? That's part of the irrational part of her desire. That's the irrationality in it is that you can be attracted to people and not understand why. You don't understand what they activate in you. You don't understand what they're stirring up and you can't turn it off. You can't stop feeling it and it can tear you apart. It can be very painful to have very intense desire for somebody, whether they reciprocate it or they don't. It can just be a very chaotic, scary, overwhelming feeling because you're giving power to someone else and you're not in control. You're not in control of yourself fully when you feel this intense desire for another person. And so for a lot of the film, you don't, you're like Franny. Like what's going on? And I think Meg Ryan conveyed that so well. Throughout the film, she's just so confused. She wants to believe him because she cares about him. She has feelings for him. She's attracted to him. But then on the other hand, she's scared of him. And there are moments throughout the film where she's frightened of him. A good example is when they're in the woods and he shows her his gun and she ends up firing it into the trash bags. But when he first brings out the gun, there's a look on her face that's like, is he gonna hurt me? She, you can see it on her face that she's scared for a minute that he has a gun. Or think of the scene with her ex-boyfriend who's stalking her. He just shows up at her apartment and he got inside and she doesn't know how. And now she's alone with him and she seems scared, you know, that she's alone with this man, even though they dated, what could he do to her? That's something that is part of being being a woman. It's part of a woman's experience in the world that when we're around men, we have to try to figure out, well, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Who can I trust and who can I not trust? And that is always part of a woman's thinking process. Am I safe in this situation? Am I not safe? And so throughout the film with Malloy, the first time you watch it, you don't know if she's safe or not. Because sometimes he's very caring and tender with her like when he bathes her near the end of the film or even when he's you know making love to her on their first date and I'll talk about that in a minute but then at other times he's very mean you know and he can be difficult because he's overwhelmed by his desire too and he resents her at times because he wants her and he can't stop thinking about her and she obsesses him as much as she as he obsesses her. They're mutually obsessed with each other and that's part of the eroticism of the film too is like there's something really seductive about that, um, intoxicating about it. You know, two people who desire each other, who are passionate about each other, who can't stop thinking about each other. There's something just, I think, intense about that and erotic. The idea that like somebody would be thinking about you as much as you think about them. There's so many, so much emotion in the film. Like it just overflows at times. I think Meg Ryan does such a great job of tapping into all those emotions that Franny has about Malloy. The fear, the sexual desire, the tenderness, the yearning, all of it. So even before they go on the date, she's just standing on the sidewalk in her slip dress and he's looking at her through his rearview mirror, looking at her legs. We see women's bodies in this film, but it's not done in a, in an objectifying way. It's hard to explain why it's not objectifying, but it's not. Even though we may see her legs or like there's a scene where Jennifer Jason Lee's like just in a bra and you can see her nipples and you can see her body. But the way that Campion films it, it's just two women together in a hot apartment they're not doing things to like turn men on like they're not arching their backs or standing in particular ways that sexualize them they're just in bras or slip dresses trying to be cool so there are ways that things are filmed 
that feel respectful of the women in the film, if that makes any sense. I just wanted to mention that. And they go to this bar and he's like, I can be whatever you want me to be. And he talks about fucking her and licking her pussy and, you know, all this stuff. I feel ridiculous using that language, but that's what's in the film. And what he's doing is he's like, he wants to turn her on. And Jane Campion mentioned this in an interview of, that's also what makes this film really subversive and radical, is that it's not about Franny turning him on. In so much of our lives as women, it's about turning men on. Our bodies are sexualized and objectified to turn men on, to satisfy their gaze and to satisfy their fantasies. And the film turns the tables and reverses it. It's the man wanting to turn the woman on. It's the man wanting to pleasure and please her. And his pleasure comes into it as well. It's mutual. It's not one-sided. And that's also what made it very erotic for me to watch is I love, love films that center female pleasure. I love it. I want more of it. I want, I want women's pleasure to always be centered and always be prioritized because our pleasure matters. Us having an orgasm should be just as important as a man having an orgasm when it comes to sex. And often there's a one-sidedness to sex, even today, after decades of feminism, even today, women are not being satisfied and pleasured the way that they should be. And the way that goes back to Audre Lorde, once you once you access the erotic within yourself, once you know how to give yourself pleasure and you experience that, that transcendent, beautiful pleasure inside your body, you will not settle for anything less. And a woman should never settle for anything less than her own pleasure as well being satisfied just as much as the man's is being satisfied. And that's what this film is about. It's about reciprocity and it's about mutuality that it's not just about him having his orgasm and his pleasure. It's also about hers. And I just don't think some people can handle that or are prepared for it, I guess. A film that centers that. And so when he's talking dirty to her, and there's a scene later on in the film where he calls her up and he tells her to touch herself and to put her finger inside herself. Again, a very erotic scene. It's her pleasure. And he gets off on imagining her touching herself and her having pleasure. It's not about her talking dirty to him and saying, oh, you do this, you do that. You know, it's not about her performing for him to turn him on. It's about her touching herself, her feeling herself and him enjoying that. I mean, that's what's so radical. If you've never been exposed to this before, it's life altering. And there's been some discourse on social media lately or recently. Why am I on Twitter? I ask myself every day why I go on Twitter. There was this whole thing a few months ago, like early 2021, about sex scenes in films and about how there there shouldn't be sex scenes in films anymore. It was so weird, <laughs> you know, it was like, and then there were a lot of people agreeing like, yeah, there shouldn't be sex scenes. They're pointless. They're stupid. They don't, they don't do anything. They don't advance the narrative. They're exploit, exploitative, blah, blah, blah. Now, are there like really bad sex scenes? Yeah. You know, a lot of male directors don't know how in the world to represent sex on screen. The phrase, <laughs> the terminology is penis in vagina sex. 
it's always that kind of sex and there's tons of moaning and there's t it's like unrealistic representations of sex between a man and a woman and it always shows penis and vagina and the woman having an orgasm from that alone it doesn't show oral sex on a woman it doesn't show touching her clitoris it doesn't show any other acts of sex except penis and vagina that's what you tend to see on a lot of tv shows and films and i know that terminology is kind of maybe crude or something but that's the truth that's what we see we don't see any other kinds of acts sexual acts and it's always about like the man the man is on top the woman's on the bottom he enters her and it's over right <laughs> they both have orgasms at the same time and it's like this is not real this is not what really happens so yeah I, I don't love those scenes either you know those sex scenes are very like unrealistic and stuff like that but I think when sex scenes are done well when they're done in a way that does center female pleasure there's not a lot out there I'll be honest with you but when you do see them as a female viewer and you know as a woman watching it it can have a profound impact on you when i watched in the cut i was just stunned by it like it just was life-changing to me to see something so feminist to see something that centered female desire and female sexuality in this way i felt empowered by it i felt like i was seeing something that i could relate to i was seeing that my pleasure mattered too and that spoke to me and it it just I loved it. Another film that comes to mind is Blue Valentine with Michelle Williams and Ryan Gosling. There's an oral sex scene in that film. So I do think that when women see oral sex, you know, a man giving oral sex to a woman, I guess cunnilingus would be the right terminology here, a man going down on a woman and pleasuring her. When women see that, that can be a very important counterbalance and corrective to all these other depictions of sex that don't center us and don't center our pleasure. We do need sex scenes. I think we need better sex scenes. I think we need sex scenes that are authentic, you know, and that really represent what two people do when they're having sex with each other, right? Whether it's two women, two men, a man and a woman. Let's diversify this. But I think when you see a really great sex scene, not necessarily just by a female director, but it tends to be by women directors. When you see that, that can be transformative and that can be empowering and that can connect you with your own sexuality, your own eroticism, and your own desire. And it can make you feel like, oh, this is an option. <laughs> you won't settle for less. I do think we need sex scenes. I don't think we should get rid of them. We're not going to. I think we need a counterbalance to pornography. Pornography is a click away nowadays and a lot of it can be very violent and degrading towards women some of it's scary honestly how degrading and violent it is so i do believe that we need depictions and representations of human sexuality that are tender and loving and mutual and full of feeling and passion and sensuality. That's what we need as well. We need a counterbalance to pornographic images that are all about sensation, as Audre Lorde said. And we need depictions of sexuality that have feeling and emotion and passion in them. And that's what movies can give us. That's what fiction and television and, 
and cinema can give us are these depictions of human sexuality that are rich and um, erotic and full of feeling and that make us feel like two people are very connected to each other and I love that. What turns me on is passion. What turns me on is connection. What turns me on is mutuality. Two people enjoying themselves and both having pleasure. And that's what Jane Campion gives us in this film. I mean, the sex scene in In the Cut is just amazing. You feel their desire. Desire turns me on. I love when I feel like two people desire each other and hunger for each other and have a passion for each other. I just love the sex scene, the oral sex scene in this film. I love it. It's so radical. It's so just amazing. We see a condom. Like you don't always see that, right? Like he's in bed and then she's undressing. He takes her panties off and he lays her on the bed and gives her oral sex. And it's just this amazing scene. It's about her pleasure and he gets off on getting her off. I love that. He wants to make her have an orgasm, right? And that's so incredibly erotic. I think it turns a lot of women on to see that. And then even after they have sex, or, or after he does the oral sex, they're sort of in bed later on and she asks him like, how did you learn to do that? And of course he learned from a woman. Like a woman taught him how to pleasure another woman, right? Or how to pleasure women. You know, he's telling her about what this woman taught him to do. And as he's doing that, he's like touching her. He wants to turn her on. And then he penetrates her and enters her. But he made sure that she was pleasured first. He made sure that she was satisfied first. So that's very erotic and passionate, I think. And I love how later on Pauline says this about her relationships with men. The interesting thing is I haven't talked a lot about the the sister relationship, but Pauline and Franny are like half sisters and they have the same dad, but they have different mothers. And the dad, he's one of those people who was in love, who was in love with love. So he had lots of marriages, was with lots of different women. He'd get with one woman and then when he got tired of her or fell out of love with her, then he'd go on to the next one, right? And that does damage and that's devastating. And I think this is a good example in the film of how the film tries to challenge some of those romantic myths about like how we get so obsessed with love as a dream, love as a fantasy, the endorphins and all of that. This idea of your soulmate and somebody's going to complete you. That's not really true. Love, I think, is more complicated. I think the film is showing that through the relationship between Franny and Malloy. The relationship between Franny and Malloy is not like a romantic comedy. And if you think about it, a lot of the films that Meg Ryan was in sort of created some of that romantic mythology a little bit. Malloy and Franny are, it's difficult. They're in conflict at times. They're kind of scared of each other, but they're also tender with each other and they're learning to trust each other. They're both kind of broken. You know, they're both kind of wounded and they're kind of slowly getting to know each other and trust each other. And it's not like a, like a, you know, film. It's not like some romantic dream. It's a little bit gritty. It's a little bit more raw, 
but it's real and it's authentic and it's two people trying to learn about each other and get to know each other and but they also have this intense attraction and intense desire for each other at the same time but later on Pauline's talking about some of her relationships with men Pauline seems to be the kind of person that she's always in a relationship or she's always falling for the wrong men and there's this sense that Franny is more walled off and more protected a little bit and she doesn't get into relationships quite as easily as Pauline might and Pauline says quote I can remember every guy I ever fucked by how he liked to do it not how I wanted to do it unquote and I I like that and I think a lot I think the film purposely put that in there right and what's so amazing about Malloy and Franny is that it's about how she wants to do it not necessarily how he wants to do it. He cares about her pleasure and he cares about what she wants and what she desires. And I think Pauline is vocalizing the reality for a lot of women that when they are dating men, when they are, you know, getting involved with men, that the men don't ask them, what turns you on? What what do you desire? How can I fulfill your desires? How can I make sure that you're experiencing pleasure just like I am that they don't even ask and that even worse they don't care they don't care if you get pleasure they don't care if it's mutual they don't care if you get something out of this sexual encounter it's about what they want and then what they think you want and they think you want something because they saw it in a porn video not because they talked to you and learned about your desires and learned about what was erotic to you and what felt good to you that it was just about what felt good to him and what feels good to the man and so this film is completely resisting that whole scenario and that whole idea that it's about what the woman desires what the woman wants and it's about her having pleasure too I but I love that oral sex scene and it was I mean 10 years ago that was one of the first films I ever saw with an oral sex scene on a woman yeah I loved it <laughs> I love that scene like I said definitely like the most erotic film I've seen and really feminist to me as well so yeah there's the oral sex scene there's when he calls her and tells her to touch herself there's the masturbation scene and then near the end there's where she handcuffs him and she's riding him and that's a very intense almost like violent scene in a way that is when her desire is just at its most violent because she's obsessed with him this film is erotic like a lot of films are called erotic thrillers and there's like a few scenes the entire film is erotic it's just has this feeling about it and it's just hard to even describe but I love the way that Campion centers female desire and female pleasure. Mark Ruffalo brought this up in an interview. There's two plots going on simultaneously. There's Malloy and Franny and their relationship and then there's the murders. Like I said if you want just a straightforward like murder film or thriller you're not gonna find it. This is much more about feelings and Franny's psychology and the relationships between her and Pauline and her and Malloy. That's what it's about much more than the murders but the murders are there and one of the the killer what the killer's doing is that he's going and he's murdering women that he meets and it's Rodriguez as we learn at the end but uh, but to me that was just kind of like whatever you know I don't really care who the murderer is I'm more interested in Malloy and Franny here that's what I care about in that relationship but he's going and he's murdering women he's dismembering them he ends up killing Pauline which I will say are there some kind of far-fetched 
plot issues in the film? Yeah. What are the chances that her sister would be murdered? Do we even know that Pauline has met Rodriguez? How did Rodriguez meet Pauline? I don't know. Yeah, there are some weird unbelievable plot points to the film, right? But I just kind of go with it. I mean, I'm not somebody who's gonna like get tripped up by it necessarily. So the killer's signature is that he leaves a wedding band on the women's fingers or on one of the fingers and he dismembers the bodies. And so really they only find like the body parts of these women. And I felt like this was almost symbolic in a way, almost saying that like, like women's desire can be their downfall. Women who are into romance, and getting married and this whole romantic mythology. I think he says something like that at the end, Rodriguez, when he's at the lighthouse with Franny. I think he's like asking her about marriage and he's like, that's what every woman wants. We become so obsessed with the romantic myths, the romantic dreams, and we can get really carried away by that. And the reality of dating, the reality of trying to find a partner, you know, to try to find someone who likes you as much as you like them, it's painful and it's hard. Love is not a fairy tale. It really isn't. I think we have really strange conceptions of what love is. We just don't understand it. I don't think we all really know how to love, how to give love, how to receive it, what it, what a healthy relationship looks like. I'm not even saying that Malloy and Franny are a healthy relationship, right? Is that possible? Some people have very healthy relationships. A lot of people don't because honestly, where a lot of us are damaged. A lot of us are damaged and wounded in a lot of ways. We may not trust. We may not be emotionally available. You know, there's all kinds of issues that people have. People can have attachment issues, right? When you're dealing with human beings, you're dealing with flawed people. You're dealing with complex, flawed, complicated people. And so love is never gonna be like what it is in the movies or, or what you read in a romance novel. In real life, finding love being in a relationship, it's so much more complicated. In a lot of ways, we, especially as women, from a very early age, we're just, there's like this propaganda that kind of happens of the knight in shining armor and Prince Charming, you know, the rainbows and the happily ever after. It's not real. You know, we get our head filled with all these dreams and then the reality is so disappointing and so heartbreaking as well. How do you find love? How do you find another person who wants to give love to you and wants the love that you have to give to them? The love that is inside you. How do you find that person? I don't know. It's, it's difficult. It's very interesting that when the women are found, it's the wedding ring on their finger. People can be in love with love, you know, and they can't see the reality of a person and they can't accept the reality of a person. And that ends up leading to these women's, to their deaths, right? It's kind of like they trust the wrong man. It's also maybe about what love can do to a woman, the way that love can really like tear you apart. And in a way, these women are torn apart, right? It's also these murders show what a man can do to a woman, what men do to women every day. Women are murdered in this country and in this world every single day by men that they married, men that they trusted, men that they called their boyfriends or their lovers, men that they had children with, and they get murdered by them. It's a very big danger in women's lives, violence from men. You know, do we ever really know who are the safe men and who are the dangerous men? To me, Malloy and Rodriguez kind of represented that. Malloy's the good guy and Rodriguez is the bad guy, but Franny doesn't know until the very end which is which. And she's chosen 
the bad guy. She thought the good guy was the bad guy, but the good guy was actually the bad guy. And it's like, how do you tell them apart? Can you? Can you tell them apart? For women, we can't always tell them apart, you know? And that's the scary part of being a woman, being a straight woman, particularly when you're dating, is that you don't know who the good ones are and who the bad ones are sometimes until it's too late. There's not always signs. And like I said, she has moments in the film with almost all the men where she feels unsafe or she feels worried that they will harm her. There's a scene with her student Cornelius. There is a scene with with Malloy at times, like with the gun that he brings out at the when they're in the woods, with her ex-boyfriend who's stalking her. All the men in the film are problematic in that way and they could be the good guys or they could be the bad guys. Or I guess they're both at times. It can be hard to trust men. I find that really difficult for me sometimes to trust men. I don't know if I ever fully trust them to be honest because there's always that sort of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde aspect to them where they seem nice and gentle and kind and then suddenly you'll see a flash of anger. You'll see this other side of them that's really frightening and that you didn't expect and it's like once you see that side I don't think you ever feel the same way about them or you feel you don't fully feel safe with them anymore after you see that but a lot of men have that about them that sort of two-sided nature, that duality. And it can be scary. And I do think that you kind of see that in these cops. And also the film doesn't like glorify cops. I mean, there's a big conversation going on in this country about policing and about um, sort of tearing down the mythology surrounding police, that they're the good guys, that they're perfect, you know, stuff like that. And this film is a really good example where the cops are are not really portrayed in a great light. They're corrupt. I mean, Rodriguez is the murderer. And I wouldn't say that Malloy always comes off the best either. You know, there are some moments in the film are kind of homophobic and racist on the part of these two cops. They are not shown as like heroes or great guys by any means. They're definitely kind of corrupt at times or a little bit rotten. And you particularly see that with Rodriguez you know, and him being the murderer. So I do feel that the film is definitely making a com- a commentary on romance, on modern romance. I love how in an interview Meg Ryan said that the film is sort of tearing down that mythology and creating a new mythology. And that mythology is this idea that you'll be completed by someone else. That if you don't meet the right person that you're somehow incomplete. That's part of the mythology that it's trying to break down, I think. And instead it's creating, maybe not creating a new mythology, but maybe trying to give us a different representation of love and romance. So Mark Ruffalo in this interview, and my sources are in the show notes as always, it was an interview with Charlie Rose in 2003, right before the film came out. What's fascinating is that is the end of the film, and I'm going to wrap this up talking about the end, is that, um, In the book, Franny Dies, Jane Campion called that ending very nihilistic. And she instead wanted a survivor in Franny. That's what she wanted. And so in the film, Franny kills Rodriguez. And it's a symbolic 
kind of death as well. Mark Ruffalo in the interview with Charlie Rose said that Franny was killing romance essentially for truth and honesty. And he also said about that there are two storylines going on. That of the serial killer and then that of the relationship between Malloy and Franny. And that relationship he said was stripped of romantic mythology. It's stripped of all that stuff, right? But it's real and it's authentic. It's the truth. It's the truth of two people being together or trying to trust each other, trying to get to know each other, right? When he said that, that was a bit of like a moment for me or like a revelation. And I thought, what if the only way we can truly love is to liberate ourselves from these romantic fantasies and dreams? We need to be in reality and you have to be open to another person and who they truly are, not who you think they are, not the fantasy that you create about them. You know, I think true love is seeing the flaws and the wounds and the brokenness in somebody and still loving them unconditionally. That's true love to me. I don't think we're really, if you're, I don't know if you're ever going to be capable of love if you're holding on to these romantic fantasies and this romantic mythology and you're obsessed with what it should be. You're obsessed with what you've been told it should look like and what it should feel like. I'm not saying you should put up with a toxic relationship. You know, if somebody's not treating you well and you don't feel right in the relationship, absolutely get out. I'm talking about if you're expecting somebody to be perfect, if you're expecting a relationship to be like something out of a movie and it's supposed to just be you know this dream or this fantasy this knight in shining armor or your princess and y'all walk into the sunset and it's happily ever after and it's so easy not necessarily Sometimes love is work. Sometimes love requires sacrifice. Love is not always necessarily the easiest thing because you have to learn to trust a person. You have to open up to them. You have to be vulnerable. You have to expose yourself to some extent, right? As long as that person's safe, you know, for you to do that. If you're expecting it to be a fantasy, you're always going to be disappointed. But the thing about Malloy and Franny is that they're both willing to to be open to each other and to be there for each other. And at the end, you know, she kills Rodriguez and it's like she kills that fantasy. She kills all oh, the wedding ring and the knight in shining armor and all that romantic crap that really holds us back, I think, doesn't allow us to meet people where they are and to accept one another for who we are and love each other unconditionally. She kills Rodriguez. She kills all of those fantasies and that mythology and she goes back to her apartment she goes back home to Malloy and she chooses that she chooses reality and authenticity she chooses complexity because she knows that she feels something for him she feels a connection for him she trusts him now she trusts him she knows he was not the murderer and he was telling the truth the entire time she would not allow herself to fully trust him she thought he was a liar she said that throughout the film she has several moments where she thinks he's the killer and she can't fully trust him until she kills Rodriguez and then she knows oh he wasn't the killer 
he was telling the truth the entire time and he was being honest with me. So it's not a perfect relationship. It's not a relationship out of a romantic fantasy, but it's two people doing the best that they can. Two people exploring the connection that they have to each other. I like that she kills Rodriguez. I like that she survives and that that's what Jane Campion wanted. Like I like stories of women surviving, women fighting back, women finding a way through it. And that's what Franny does. You know, she fights back and she survives. And I do think that we need stories like that at times of women surviving and getting through. And she's covered in his blood instead of him being covered in her blood. She survives and she makes it home and she gets out of there alive. I love that part of it. And I also wanted to say that on top of everything else I've talked about, I know I lingered a lot on the sex and the eroticism, but that's a huge part of the film. And that's a huge part that separates it, that makes it radical, that makes it unique, that makes it such a powerful experience, I think, for a female viewer, is to see representations of eroticism and sexuality that are mutual and that are balanced and that are wonderful. Like, I just loved it. I loved seeing that. But I did also want to say that this was a film made after 9-11 and it really shows post 9-11 New York. There's a grittiness about it. Like usually when New York is represented now, it's in a very like upper class way, really perfect and safe. It's sort of like the sex in the city version of New York City. But I thought it was interesting how this version of New York City in, in the cut is so much more gritty. It's like almost something from the 80s from another era. And I did hate that Mark Ruffalo had a mustache. I really wish he had not had a mustache. <laughs> I like clean-shaven Mark Ruffalo. I haven't even talked about how sexy Mark Ruffalo is. I find him incredibly attractive. In this film, he is irresistible, even with a mustache. I loved looking at him. I loved the way he looked at her. He gave her looks at times, like his eyes on her. What is it? What is the saying? Like, my ovaries exploded? <laughs> Yeah, I got a lot of pleasure from looking at Mark Ruffalo. This film gave me pleasure just to watch it. I just loved it. I loved the sex scenes. I loved the relationship between the sisters. I loved the colors. I loved the fashion. I loved looking at Mark Ruffalo for like almost two hours. <laughs> I loved the way he looked at her. That's part of the eroticism too. Like this is what a lot of women love. We love the seduction. We love the attraction. We love seeing a man look at a woman like he wants to devour her. We love the passion. We love touching. I loved when they were having sex at different times or or like when they go to the woods and she hops on the hood of the car and they're just kissing. That is one of the most passionate kissing scenes I've ever seen. And I found that incredibly erotic. The way that they were just kissing each other and devouring each other. And she touches his face at times. During that kissing scene, I think when they were having sex, just different times when they're together, she'll just touch his face. There's a tenderness. I know that I as a woman love that. And I think a lot of other women love moments like that. Just a look that a man can give a woman, right? That you can tell in that look, he wants her. And every woman, like straight woman, right? Wants that look 
look. You want a man to look at you that way. He just cannot get enough of you. And you're like the only woman in the world, the only woman in the room. That's an intoxicating thing. So we like the seduction. We don't just, it's not just about the act itself. That's nice, of course. It's the buildup. It's the foreplay. It's the seduction. It's the passion. That is such a beautiful part of this film. So I love the fashion and I love how New York looks in the film. I mean, it's post 9-11. There's no reference to 9-11 except for the Manhattan skyline that doesn't have the Twin Towers in it. That gaping absence that's there in the city. It's just a powerful part of the film that when I was watching it, I was like, wow, this was only a couple of years after 9-11. And, and those two towers are gone. And it's set during the summer. And there's something about the summer light in New York City that I find incredibly beautiful and people rollerblading. And it really captures life in the early 2000s as well. So that was something I enjoyed just on an aesthetic level of seeing New York City at that time period. Loved sort of the camera work and how it's impressionistic and out of focus and blurry at times and Meg Ryan's performance you felt her fragility but then you could feel her desire and she would get really assertive you know when she was with Malloy at times a really complicated nuanced performance as well on her part yeah all of it I just loved it I loved the focus on desire and eroticism but then it does have this thriller aspect you know when you watch it the first time you're hooked like who did this who is the murderer is Malloy the murderer you know and then you find out it's Rodriguez and that was I think I was shocked the first time I watched it I didn't see that coming you know, they withhold it pretty well. So it is a thriller. It has all kinds of stuff going on, but I loved it. This film, it does not deserve the negative reviews. <laughs> and I, I do wonder if men and women watch it differently. I think as a woman viewer, I, I'm just enraptured by it and entranced by it. Love the representations of women in it and sex and eroticism um, and desire. I was also interested in the murder. I was interested in the killing. I was interested in the thriller aspect, of course. So that's in there as well. And it keeps you interested. But it's just not only about that. It's also about these relationships and these emotions, sort of these volcanic emotions that are under the surface and they're surging out. They're like coming out. I loved it. I would watch it again. I rewatched certain scenes a few times when I was watching it. I just loved it. And I really just wanted to be able to talk about desire and eroticism. And I hope that the way I've talked about it maybe resonates with some of you who are, who are listening. I don't know. I can only talk about it from my perspective and what I feel that's all I wanted to do is that I wanted to try to talk about it in an honest way and what I feel within myself and my connection to my desire and my eroticism as a woman I think we should be able to do that as women we should be able to talk about that in a frank honest open way without being ashamed or embarrassed or anything like that and so that's what I'm doing I will always be vulnerable on this podcast and talking about something like this it's really vulnerable I'm putting myself out there to expose I guess this particular part of myself but I hope that maybe young women could be listening who are in their 20s who hopefully they can connect to that part of themselves as well and to not settle 
when it comes to your interactions and your relationships with men, if you're dating men, to make sure that you're connected with that within yourself. I think that's important and to to connect with that eroticism and to live your life sort of being guided by it in a way the way that Audre Lorde talks about it. Like bring those emotions, bring that feeling into every part of your life and into your creative being and use the erotic as a force, as an energy, as a life force, right? And that's something that it definitely is for me. And I just love that. It's like this, it's like a feminist thing, sort of a feminist reimagining of the erotic and of our sexuality as well. And I think that's really important. I think it's vital. And I think Jane Campion's film opens up a discussion about the erotic and about women's sexuality, women's desire, women's pleasure, our relationships with men, you know, if we're straight women or bisexual women. That's all I wanted to say. I think I've said it all and it's an amazing film and I've touched on a lot of stuff. I hope this was productive and valuable. I feel a bit exposed, but it's okay. That's all right. I said what I wanted to say and I stayed true to myself. And I think that's what we have to do sometimes as women is to be true to ourselves. So I'll stop here. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Ellie, Travis, Pierce, Amir, Christine, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Polina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.